0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Health uh, authorities in Quebec announced uh, this morning that two of the five men who uh, were wounded remained in critical condition and will be uh, operated on again uh, today. Uh, What is it as far as uh, the latest information coming out of Quebec as far as what we know of the man who pulled the trigger? Uh, Not exactly who we thought it would be, I'm guessing. John Thompson is with us now, Security Consultant Strategic Intelligence Group, and he is with us now. Hello, John. How are you today? Not bad. Yourself? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We certainly do appreciate this. Your thoughts on, uh, well, first of all, anything you know, anything you can tell us about uh, this man uh, who took the lives of six in Quebec City? Do we have any uh, latest information we can pass along?
1: Well, we're still pulling details together, but it would look like uh, from sort of a, a point of view of psychology and criminology, he's falling into a, a pattern that we know all too well, that you know, this is just another uh, mass shooter uh, with sort of the same background and the same motivations as most of them.
0: Is this a terrorist attack then? I mean, is that the same? I mean, I guess it's domestic terror, is it not? It, this is
1: one of those points. I mean, terrorism has always got, uh, if I can use the term, some fuzzy edges to it. Uh And it, it does overlap with, um, um shall we say, sort of the psychology of, of mass shooters. And sometimes it's pretty clear, like if the case of ISIS uh, or Al-Qaeda, where they are deliberately looking for people like that and grooming them, you know, over the Internet or in person to commit an attack on behalf of the group, that's pretty clear on the terrorism side of the line the on the other hand when you've got someone who's completely autonomous and does and seems to have an ideology of one uh it's pretty clearly not on the terrorism side and this guy falls in between
0: uh so there is no or is there any affiliation or is he a supporter of any sort of terrorist organization do we know that
1: Well, Facebook likes do not an ideology make. Hmm. Um, You know, the the fact that he liked Trump and was an internet troll and he expressed some, you know, opinions, you know, on social media. Uh, Again, a lot of these people tend to believe in all sorts of things, especially at that stage when they're sort of roundabout and looking for some sort of ideology or for inventing an ideology that'll allow them to act out. But. Uh, the problem is you know we can't make anything out of his attacking a mosque because uh Bissonnette could have twitched another way and gone after a political party or gone into a school or or gone to a, a workplace or done any number of other tra- gone after any number of other targets
0: is that why the prime minister and others are calling him a terrorist is because it was an attack on a mosque is that where you draw the line
1: um that might be the case it, it's also i think <clears throat> uh easier to uh, uh and and also perhaps useful to describe this as an act of terrorism. Um I just not quite sure that it is. I mean it's still pretty reprehensible but uh I suspect really when you look at it it comes down to the sign of mental illness rather than anything else
0: uh the prime minister was quick to call this a terrorist act he had been criticized in the past for not doing that uh does that does this hold any relevance here
1: um i th- i think there are lots of other people who would be willing to uh, argue that point um and for a number of different uh, a number of reasons um i i think certainly sort of his own political preferences might play into uh the decision, and remember, at the time it first occurred, we thought it was a terrorist act. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you because know, we thought there were several gunmen, which implied it was a, a much more organized activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, in which case, it would be very easy to describe it as a, a terrorist act. But as you mm-hmm. know, the, the facts trickle down, we realize it's just this one guy who was a quiet loner who stuck to himself, didn't socialize with other people, and. Uh, harbored a grievance against the world generally and then and focused it on a particular target.
0: Uh, d- d- does this discussion change because he's a white, blue-eyed male with no affiliation, or it appears no affiliation or supporter of an, a, a terrorist network? Um, It
1: probably will. I mean, there are an awful lot of people who would uh, uh, like to... Uh, put a different stamp on it. And and again, we've had other cases where lone gunmen have gone into things, and all manner of particular perspectives have put their stamp on the incident. Uh, We go back to the École Polytechnique, and that got it turned into uh, an attack on women generally, although you could also argue that he was uh, sort of a... the the gunman there was a a proto-jihadist who had uh, his father's uh, dislike of strong women. We've had attacks, again in Quebec, on the Parti Quebecois. And again, there were a lot of people who were willing to accept this was uh, bigotry. And then, you know, Valerie Fabricant, who just basically walked into uh, the mathematics department at this university and shot his colleagues, and no one really wanted to make a, a special case about it, and we just kept that one purely as a mental illness.
0: Uh, is it possible that this is just uh, a disturbed individual who was looking for the news item of the day to cement his infamacy? I mean, is it, like you said, could he have walked into any scenario and done this? Um, that's that's pretty much the way I think it is. Um,
1: and he could have twitched in, in any direction. Yeah. Um, in his own case, I mean, he he sort of had to make up an ideology. There is, um, in in Quebec, you know, there's a a growing feeling that, or a a growing section of people that uh, think that some sort of confrontation with uh, uh, Islam is is going to happen, but again, they're not expressing violence. They're not uh, uh, talking about, uh, you know, a violent confrontation at all. Uh, And Again, Bissonnette is someone who went off and acted on his own. Uh, Brevik in Norway, you know, who ended up, you know, shooting dozens and dozens of teenagers at a political party picnic, uh, had some of the same beliefs.
0: Worried that there may be copycats if this is the, f- in fact, the profile of Bissonnette that you know he is just a disturbed individual who decided to. Uh you know, go out in a blaze of glory, I guess. I don't know. And, and how odd is this that he did not do that, that he did uh, turn himself in? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Um, well, a lot of them turn themselves in or, or surrender because, you know, they also want to uh, have their, their place at the center of a, a attention in court. Uh, I remember uh, Breivik in Norway, as soon as the police arrived where he'd been busy massacring teenagers, he put his gun down and raised his hand because he thought he was going to be able to uh, get a chance to uh, do a lot of talking in court. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, the judge basically said, shut up, we don't need to hear about you, and uh, walked him away. Uh, But I think Bisseneff, again, wants to be the center of attention, and I suspect that
0: he, he also really wants to do a lot of talking. That does not fit the profile of a terrorist, does it? I mean, that doesn't fit the profile of a suicide bomber. Uh, no,
1: it, it doesn't. Well, the suicide bombers tend to, especially um, uh, all the jihadist ones, leave a videotape behind as a declaration. But uh, yeah, the conventional case of a, a terrorist is that he lets the uh, the action, his violence, speak for himself. Where somebody who's desperately craving attention is, is hoping that their act will. Yeah. Give them an audience that they haven't been able to get any other way. Hmm.
0: So, is there a difference between perhaps a mentally ill um, uh, serial killer than than a terrorist? I mean, where do we draw the line there? Does this help it, help us in any way? Can we clearly define whether this is a terrorist or not? Because at this point, John, it really doesn't sound like he is. I mean, he's a terrorist in the sense that he's inflicted terror on people. And so I guess in that respect, he's a, he's a domestic terrorist, but he doesn't seem to be affiliated with a, a terrorist organization or, or, or feelings of any sort.
1: Well, again, that's a, uh, it's a point. It's, it's a line I use quite often in lecturing, but I describe terrorism as a kingdom with murky borders.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: it does intersect and overlap with organized crime. It, uh, yeah.
0: And it can obviously with... influence outsiders.
1: Oh, yeah. And it, it intersects uh, with protest, yeah. you know, uh, and sometimes with governance. Um, it, it's, and this is a case, again, where everybody will have to make their own mind up whether or not this is an act of terrorism or not. But
0: it's a debatable point. Where do we go from here if we can't make that distinction? How do we address this if we can't even agree on the terminology?
1: Well, uh, this is going to have to go to trial and to the courts. I mean, the the police have a number of offenses, uh, charges they've already tagged onto him, and and there are more to follow. But some of them are terrorist-related offenses. Now, it remains to be seen if the justice system will convict him on terrorist-related offenses or just the plain, you know, violent criminal offenses.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and I think that's the precedent. That is what makes it what makes the case interesting is the uh, the law that comes out of it.
0: Uh, obviously, it's a hate crime because he targeted uh, a certain group. But again, does hate crime equal terrorist? Uh,
1: I, I think you can make the point that uh, hate crime does not necessarily uh, is not necessarily terrorism, but Every act of terrorism is itself a hate crime of some kind or another.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So do you think we'll see more of this sort of thing? Just loose individuals who'll use any excuse to carry through their hate or their feelings? It's a constant.
1: Yeah. These people have
0: been coming for 200 years. Yeah. Uh, So where do we go from here? How does this change the discussion?
1: Well, I'm not really sure that it can. Um, I mean, the tactics keep changing. Two hundred years ago, these were people that you know were uh, stalking heads of state uh, and and public figures and trying to assassinate them, and for some creed or another. And then they were throwing bombs in cafes for some creed or another. And you you can l- make a long list of the ideologies that have been used to justify the uh, attacks like this. Some have called themselves uh, Republicans, uh, revolutionaries, anarchists, Freemasons, uh, you know, Knights Templar, uh, freedom fighters. Um, the ideology is one that the individual grabs and tries to tie to himself.
0: Uh, w- will we find out in the end that this just is a mentally ill person with white supremacist leanings?
1: Probably. Well, I'll have to watch the trial and see what the judge decides.
0: Uh, What message do you want Canadians to get from all of this? What should they remember in all of this? This, I mean, this is a tragedy, and you you can't take away from that. But
1: don't read more into it than is there. This is, again, uh, uh, a lone, disturbed individual acting out, and he could have chosen any target. And, and, and the point is that uh, don't turn this into a political signal of some sort, because it isn't.
0: John Thompson has been with the Security Consultant Strategic Intelligence Group. John, as always, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Metrolinx is expecting to formally test interest in on the LRT project within days as far as uh, bids and such. There are also changes uh, as the province rethinks the spur line to James Street and of course the Bay Street stop have all been topics of late. To talk more about all of this, Keenan Loomis is with us, President and CEO, Hamilton Chamber of Commerce and he is with us now. Hello Keenan. how are you today? I'm doing well,
3: Scott. Good afternoon.
0: Thank you for taking the time to join us. We always appreciate this. Uh, Give us the latest. Give us the update. Let's start with the Bay Street Stop.
3: Yeah, well, yesterday we had uh, the LRT subcommittee at uh, Council, and uh, we had uh, discussed at the last meeting um, the letter submitted by us, the Chamber of Commerce, with uh, the signatures of many key stakeholders around the intersection of Bay and King, uh, requesting a uh, that uh, the staff look at the possibility, the feasibility of a Bay Street stop. Uh, received a receptive audience at the last meeting and uh, the mayor and others directed staff to uh, have a look at it and so that report was presented uh, at yesterday's meeting it was a short report because uh, staff uh, in looking at it uh, were able to discern that uh, there weren't a lot of impacts to the overall um, uh, project itself it added 50 seconds in terms of travel time from uh, end to end Um, and uh, cost only another uh, $2.5 million. Um, So uh, we received another receptive audience yesterday, and uh, it is now going to uh, the broader council for uh, support and direction to Metrolinx that uh, they add the Bay Street stop into the overall project.
0: I think this is a great idea, especially uh, for the obvious reasons around Bay Street and just the entertainment area and such. Um, I had one listener email me why the cost is over $2 million to add another stop. Especially if there's not any sort of expropriation of land to be had?
3: Well, there is apparently uh, a little bit of expropriation that's required, a couple uh, slivers that are required. My understanding is that is on the south side of, uh, of King Street, which, as we know right now, is surface parking lots, so there mm-hmm. won't be a huge impact there. Um, but the stop itself is for the basically just to um, build the station. That's mm-hmm. the, the extra cost associated with the Bay Street stop.
0: Uh, Also had another question from a listener. Will King Street be shut down from Wellington to Mary during construction? They had heard that rumor.
3: Uh, I think it's probably pretty feasible, although, you know, at this point it's probably uh, way too early to uh, speculate because it'll be up to the consortium that builds this. Um, to lay out uh, their proposal for how they are going to build it in terms of phasing and all of that stuff. But I would expect that, uh, yeah, any particular section that's being worked on um, of King Street, that that would be uh, shut down for for that uh, period of time. And we won't know any more of that until there is actually
0: a contractor in place and timetables and such, correct?
3: Yeah, that's a couple of years from now, um, because the last thing that uh, MetroLink's and the LOT project team want to do is tie the hands of the bidders. It'll be up to them, the construction consortium, to, uh, to again, propose the, the best way going forward and, and, and the best way to mitigate the impact overall to uh, the businesses, of course, and, and to traffic in the lower city.
0: Uh, anything more on linking this to the GO and the James Street Spur?
3: Well, my understanding is that uh, if we are to lose the James Street Spur, that um, uh, one of the potential proposals would be to um, build out uh, BRT along the A-Line. So um, in that respect, certainly higher order transit uh, um, linking the lower city to the upper city up to possibly the airport um, would link together all of the, uh, the provincial assets, um, being the LRT uh, project and the, the two uh, GO stations.
0: Uh, I've always obviously been a, a huge proponent of linking the two with some sort of line. I understand that if that's a waste of money and not worth it and there's more efficient ways to be doing this, I, I'm certainly open to that. But lots would say, you know, if it's just a case of putting a high-speed bus, bus link back and forth or adding to the A-line and, and, and getting a high-speed link up to the airport, some would say, well, why didn't we just do that with the LRT in the first place? If the bus, if 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 bus rapid transit is the answer to linking it to go, then why not do it all that way?
3: Well, I I mean, what we've determined is that LRT going east to west is is the best thing to do. It's the uh, uh, you know BRT is going to be just as disruptive as building an LRT system, uh, pretty much uh, going from east to west, and and we know that uh, trains have uh, one of the bigger. Um, uh, piece items of the agenda for the the train the B line is of course uh, economic uplift and in for um, building along the line obviously the A line is different uh north to south we've got an escarpment in the way um, so bus makes a heck of a lot more sense, and then when you look at uh, at Upper James, which is likely the route for the A-Line, a uh, little bit different densities, a little bit different uh, uh, topography uh, as well, so uh, bus makes a heck of a lot more sense in, on that route.
0: Yeah, I guess if you're going from top to bottom, but this is almost two separate issues. It's, it's, it's the issue of getting the people from the mountain down, and then it's also the issue of getting people from the LRT to the GO station. Uh, Yes, they do all run along the same A-line, but does that mean that the same solution fits both problems?
3: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I I think, again, you know, it's going to – the A-line is a lot – uh, it's a lot longer mm-hmm. uh, from our harbor front to airport, so mm-hmm. obviously uh, rail would uh, be a little bit more expensive there. And then, of course, you have the escarpment in the way and uh, the engineering uh, problem of of having to deal with that. So I think bus does make a heck of a lot more sense, and I don't think that there's any problems with having uh, mixed uses within our transit system.
0: Uh, and you don't—you're not worried that um, having to take a bus from the uh, LRT to the GO station is going to deter riders from using it.
3: Well, I think most uh, people that would be taking the LRT to the GO station would probably be using the uh, higher-order pedestrian uh, walkway that is being planned along Houston Street.
0: Uh, yeah, but do we know if that's a, a go? Like, again, wh- how are we accessing the go line from the LRT? Do we know that yet? Is it bus via? Is it bus down where the spur line is going to be, or is it going to be from the other station?
3: My understanding that is that many of these details will be coming out soon, and I don't have. I'm not privy right. to all of that information.
0: Uh, okay. What about the next step for LRT and, and acquiring bidders and such? What happens next?
3: Uh, again I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not part of the LRT project team. I do know not a lot about this because we are very involved and we do have a, our LRT task force within the Chamber of Commerce. Um, but my understanding is the the environmental assessment uh, will be uh, submitted to the province in March um, and that will allow us to go ahead uh, environmentally and then uh, over the course of the next twelve months or so. Um, that's when a lot of the bidding starts, a lot of the, there's an RFQ, or RFP process. Um, it's basically helping bidders understand the full scope of the project so that they can make their proper bid.
0: Obviously this has been uh, a divisive issue at times in the city of Hamilton. Have you seen the response changing at all, Keenan? Have you, have you noticed a different attitude at all or is it pretty much the same?
3: I certainly have noticed a different attitude. I think that the more information that's come out, um, you know over the last number of months uh has helped uh answer a lot of questions i get that people are uneasy with change, um, and I think that this, just like almost anything else in life, is an exercise in change management. And I think that um, a lot of a lot of answers have been uh, made by Paul Johnson and the LRT project team, and and Metrolinx and all of that. And I think people are getting a much better understanding of what this project is going to look like. Um, and I'm I'm hoping that people are more. Uh, accepting uh, of this and, and realizing that, you know, there's a lot of great things that are happening in Hamilton, but this is the perfect time um, to be making this type of investment and, and to be uh, spurring even further the uh, renaissance that's happening in Hamilton.
0: What do outsiders moving in say? What do developers say about all of this? Are they still as optimistic?
3: Well, I think what we're seeing time and time again is, uh is Testimony from developers. Uh, I know that uh, I saw this in the spec uh, related to the project at King and Queen. Um, I know that this is the same for a project, uh, another project downtown, and so many other developers who have said this in the past. Rancor and, and Leuna, as well, who have projects uh, happening at this moment, they're saying they're they're making these investments because of LRT, and I think that. Uh, um, you know, one of the interesting phenomena here in, in Hamilton is that it's always people from outside. Who are far more accepting of, of this LRT project, far more accepting of um, the emphasis that's being placed on downtown renewal, because they're coming at it with fresh eyes. Um, you know, not uh, at all uh, bearing the scars of of amalgamation and the urban and suburban divide that has developed here in the city. And they're seeing, you know, a great urban fabric and 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 seeing so many uh, opportunities and possibilities with all of the uh, surface parking lots and uh, other their vacant storefronts and and so on, and, and seeing that this is exactly the type of investment that you would make at this time.
0: Uh, the, the comment that you just made about outsiders being more positive than insiders, uh, boy, oh boy, I think I've been noticing that for the last 20 years or so. <laughs> um, but do you think that that's finally, I, I'm starting to notice that's finally shifting, and whether that's just more people coming in and the old ones going out I'm, and the whole thing just uh, evolving, I'm not sure, but you, you certainly do seem more Uh, or more people accepting of the growing Hamilton because they can actually see the tangible differences now.
3: Yeah, I, I think you know. As uh, as trifling as it sounds, you know, I think that the exploding restaurant scene, for example, in, in Hamilton yeah. is is bringing people down uh, from the mountain or from Hancaster or Waterdown, and uh, for the first time in many years, and, and they're able to see for themselves uh, what's happening and, and how many people uh, are actually here. I mean, I, I myself just before coming on the the show with you. I was walking through Jackson Square, and I'm always struck by how many people are milling about through the mall on their way to work or on their way to Starbucks or to the gym or to Nations. And the LCBO, et cetera. And, and I think that, you know, many people will remember the times when you could shoot a cannon yeah. through the halls of Jackson Square and not hit anybody. And I mm-hmm. think it, all, that, all that you need is to come down on a Tuesday afternoon and see uh, all the people milling about in Jackson Square. And I think your perceptions of what's going on in downtown Hamilton will change immediately.
0: And, and you bring up a valid point about the restaurants, because it wasn't that long ago where it was just the same you know, basic half-dozen staple of restaurants that had been here for ever now that has completely changed and 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 obviously they wouldn't be down there if they weren't if they were if there wasn't business there if it wasn't
3: developing that's right i mean you're seeing a lot of i, I went to try to go to hamburger last week on, huh. on wednesday for my birthday and i couldn't get in it was a 45 minute wait yeah. with the, with the yeah. kids and it was at 5:30. um that is it's incredible to see all of the people who are living downtown that are are, are patronizing our, uh, our member businesses, and all the people who are coming from around uh, the core as well to come downtown. It, it is truly now a destination. Um, and like I said, I mean, we haven't even really, uh, you know, hit the the surface of the of the iceberg here because like i mean again there are so many vacant parking lots in in the lower city and every single one of them could be its own development and so again i think that you know as great as things are are happening um we have a lot more opportunity and something like uh, lrt is exactly what is needed to unlock the potential of of the entire lower city
0: uh obviously still some people that are skeptical out there uh at this stage of the game what would you say to them
3: uh, at this stage in the game, I would say work with us to make this the best project possible. I, and I think that the questions and the skepticism have helped us hone our message. Um, I think what you're seeing is uh, a lot more people... Uh, now understand the overall project scope and the fact that beeline is not the only uh, part of the project in fact we have much broader uh, goals uh, a much longer 25year transit strategy for the city that will reach uh, to every corner of the city so beeline is going to be the spine because it is the the densest part of our community but everything else is going to feed into it and uh, 25 years from now when your kids are uh, graduating from McMaster they're going to want to stay here because of the vibrancy uh, in this community that that transit system created
0: well said Keenan loomis has been with us president and ceo of the hamilton chamber of commerce with an lrt update Keenan, thanks for the time and insight much appreciated keep up the great work thank you you're listening to the scott thompson show weekdays from noon to three on am 900 CHML. all right ontario's government is putting money out towards expanding natural gas access in rural and northern ontario communities uh, and it, it's odd, you know,, um, well, it's odd for many reasons. but, but another uh, spin off of this is that uh, the head of the uh, Canadian Curling, uh, sorry Ontario Curling Association said that if, if people don't get a handle on their electricity bills, that their sport is going to suffer. We forget about ice rinks, curling rinks, and skating rinks uh, in northern or rural communities obviously depend on electricity to keep their uh, facilities operating. Uh, the uh, head of the Ontario Curling Association says we have 197 mem- members currently, and he would hazard a guess that between 10 and 20 percent of the clubs are on the threshold that in the next couple of years they could go broke. Uh, it used to cost between 15 to 18 thousand dollars a year to operate the facility. Now it's anywhere from 30 to 45 thousand dollars a year just for electricity for curling rinks. So the head of the Curling Association of Ontario is worried that they're going to have to close rinks. Just one of the other fallouts of uh, Kathleen Wynne's energy mistake. And and now uh, to combat that, and many people would be uh, applauding this move, she wants to expand natural gas into uh, rural areas in northern Ontario. Right now about 75% of us, I guess, get our energy through natural gas. But this seems completely... uh, Ironic to me that she wants to replace clean, clean electrical energy in the North and replace it with clean fossil fuel, natural gas, which she's trying to get everybody off of. So she has priced electricity so prohibitively expensive that now she's shooting natural gas out there because the people in Northern Ontario can't afford to be clean anymore. How ironic is it that she's trying to force everybody to be clean and in the process has driven everyone back to natural gas. Does anybody think this is bizarre? I mean, I'm thankful for the people of rural Ontario because they're going to finally get some relief in the form of clean natural gas. But this goes against everything that this government has talked about. The North is on clean electrical energy. They just can't afford it. So they have to come off their clean electricity and get on fossil fuel natural gas. How ironic that Kathleen Wynne's green energy plan is forcing people off of clean energy back to fossil fuel. Or in this case, for the first time. I mean, how ironic is this? These people were on clean energy, but now they can't afford it. So we have to ship some gas up to them. Man, what a mess. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Dr. Ross McKittrick is with us, Professor of Economics, CBE Fellow in Sustainable Commerce, Department of Economics and Finance with the University of Guelph, and is with us now. Hello, Ross. How are you today?
2: Fine, thanks, Scott. How are you?
0: Uh, Fine. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, Does anybody else find this odd that the North, which has been enjoying clean energy, now has to go on to gas because they simply can't afford it anymore? Doesn't that seem odd? Doesn't that sort of go against what we were trying to do?
2: It's not just odd. It's it's, uh, downright contradictory because just last year, the wind government put out their climate change action plan, which promised to phase out the use of natural gas. They were going to make it illegal to build new houses that used natural gas. Everyone was going to have to use electricity.
0: And that was by 2030 or something, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, it was it was a frightening plan. I mean, it was obvious at the time that the province was in the hands of extreme ideologues, and we know the the result of that is that what happened to our electricity system. And um, I think they they genuinely forgot. I mean, a lot of these people live in downtown Toronto, and and they just didn't realize that a lot of people in rural Ontario don't have any alternative to electricity. And so when the electricity prices doubled and then tripled, it took them by surprise. That this actually affected people. That there are people that are dependent on electricity to heat their homes. So um, this announcement to me just it shows how they're they're improvising. They're they're kind of throwing out last week's plan, try on something new, and if it contradicts last week's plan, so be it. I don't really take seriously though this call for um, extending natural gas into rural areas the way they're doing um, because it's it's not something you can do overnight. Um, Saskatchewan went through a rural gasification program back in the 1980s, and they they did a very good job of it, but it takes a lot of advanced planning, because unless you have a lot of hookups on each route, unless you plan it out so that you know ahead of time that you're going to get a lot of customers on each line, the costs get out of control. And so they had to do a lot of work to get easements and right-of-ways for the pipelines, and and, uh, it all Ended up working quite well. They they brought the whole thing in at a fairly low cost, and now they have extensive natural gas availability in rural areas. But they couldn't just send in trucks and start throwing natural gas pipe around because um, the costs get out of control. And also, it's uh, up in northern Ontario. There's you're on the Canadian Shield, and it just may not be possible in some places to put natural gas lines in um, without. Very expensive construction.
0: You talked about the environmental extremists that were in this party, and 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 one of my next questions was was to be about the you know removing natural gas uh, by 2030, and now of course the reversing that decision. How do we know those people aren't still there? I mean, are they still <laughs> there hiding underneath the the weeds? I mean, what's changed?
2: Uh, are you surprised? Well, I don't think are you surprised? They're all still you, there? I think they've gone to Ottawa yeah, and uh, yeah. they are now in the Prime Minister's office.
0: Uh, <laughs> uh are you surprised that she made this announcement to go and, and extend natural gas
2: um well i I didn't necessarily see the the natural gas uh, announcement coming I'm a bit surprised that it's such a a complete and total contradiction of a plan that they were bragging about only last year um, you know they 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 really spent a lot of money promoting their their climate plan and and with all those ads on television and the kids holding their drawings about how we're all going to save the planet. And now uh, that's out the window and and, uh, they're they're changing course. Um, I guess what uh, doesn't surprise me, though, is they realize they have a a huge problem. And for them, it's a political problem. For the rest of it, it's it's an economic and a survival problem. Mm. Um, And uh, they are anxiously trying to come up with ways of, of alleviating the problems that they've created. It's, it's all slapdash and improvised, so it's not very impressive, but I'm not surprised, at, and we'll see more of this, I expect.
0: It just, Again, I just can't wrap my head around the fact that we are now going to move rural Ontario, off of clean electricity to put them on natural gas because now electricity, she's priced it out of everyone's hands. I mean, it's got to the point where now she's made clean energy so expensive, these people have to go back to gas, even though they were never there.
2: Yeah, well, you're right. We used to have a lot of electricity, mostly from hydro and nuclear, so no emissions associated with it, and it was all very inexpensive. The wholesale price is still very low for that kind of electricity, so it, it was. It worked all around, and, and people were able to do just fine. And you mentioned skating rinks and, and community centers, um, and these are very visible places that have high electricity demands. And, of course, um, not surprisingly, now they're, uh, they're, they're not able to pay their bills uh, in a lot of cases. Also, don't forget that they've just brought in this cap-and-trade system, and the big cost shock for that is going to be on natural gas because uh, now – every use of natural gas has to price in uh, these cap-and-trade permits. Um, mm. And there they can't even guarantee Will natural um, gas become where the as- price is going to go on that because it's the market's controlled by California and Quebec.
0: Do you see natural gas prices going the same way as electricity prices?
2: Uh, no, because uh, the supply of natural gas is, is really abundant. So at least for the next... Um, I don't know, five to ten years. I'm I'm not a forecaster in the energy markets, but uh, as far as the gas supply, the shale gas uh, revolution in the U.S., for the foreseeable future, the wholesale price of natural gas is going to continue to be low. Where it would go up, though, is policies in in Ontario, like the one that that started January 1st. Um, So she wants to encourage natural gas use, but she has just added... um, the cap and trade system and then the federal carbon price will kick in at a certain point down the road and that So that part will go up.
0: When you see of things like, well, there's been many reversals in this, uh, although I'm not sure that there's been a whole system change by any means. But when you see the flip-flop on going from getting people off natural gas to now outfitting people in rural Ontario with gas instead of clean electricity, how are we supposed to have confidence in things like cap and trade? How are we even supposed to have confidence in buying electric cars if, you know, at the end of the day, the price is going through the roof? And, I mean, you can say, well, it only adds this much now. Well, that's now. But, again, look what's happened to rural Ontario. And they had no idea that this was even going to happen.
2: Yeah, well, I think one thing you can have confidence in is that unless they – like, these are still Band-Aid solutions targeting narrow little constituencies that they hope to bring a bit of relief to. And there's – the kind of planning that would be needed for major rural gasification in northern Ontario isn't there. They obviously couldn't have planned that out in the time it took them to make this announcement. So unless you see a really wholesale change of direction, which uh, goes through the provisions of the Green Energy Act and really reverses a lot of them, and uh, like, if they really bite the bullet and change course, uh, in a way that the proof will be, Our electricity prices coming down yeah and um, otherwise the system that they built right now uh, there's no prospect of of broad-based relief
0: will we see that relief I mean will they change Uh, we all know they're stubborn and that they've wrapped their hands around this their heads around this ideology but at the end of the day is it worth lose them losing an election over can you see them do they have a choice but to change the system but to make wholesale changes
2: well, I I don't know, because having been wa- watching this now for the past 10 years, the thing is, a lot of this was predictable, and yeah. they knew it going in, and they were absolutely determined, and they thought this would be popular. I mean, they, they thought that the public would, would appreciate so much their 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 green initiatives, and um, then, now that it's blowing up on them in terms of, of popular support, now they're beginning to try to figure out what they can do but I personally I don't see the big change of heart that would be required like I don't see them repudiating standing up and saying okay we went too far we made a mistake we're going to unravel some of this Um, what they're doing is making they're saying we've done the right thing Uh, we had to do it Uh, we stand by these decisions we're just going to put a few patches in place and and try to um, give a little bit of relief here and there
0: How is the opposition going to handle this? Patrick Brown uh, already said, uh, let me make it very clear. Let me be unequivocal on this. Uh, We support uh, natural gas expansion and we are tired of waiting. Uh, Now that uh, the Liberals have decided to take natural gas to some parts of rural Ontario and replacing... Uh, clean electricity that's too high-priced with that. Uh, How long before this report that you were speaking of of last year where they were going to get everybody off of natural gas by 2030? I mean, this is going to land back in the news again. How can it not?
2: Um, Well, yeah, I would think so. I'm sure um, somebody must be um, looking up the document. Like I say, it was only last year or so. Um, and put it to the energy minister of how did these two announcements go? To-? Uh, should we believe you back then or should we believe you now? Because, you know, you, we can't believe you both times. So um, uh, I'm sure the question has to go back to them. As far as um, the, the opposition supporting it, um, like I say, it was done in Saskatchewan and they did a, a good job of it and they benefited from it. Um, but it did take careful planning and they have to know that It's technologically possible uh, along the routes that they're thinking of, and they can't overpromise, too. They they won't be able to deliver natural gas everywhere. It's still got to be fairly well-populated areas, otherwise um, it's too expensive to put lines out where there aren't any customers along the way.
0: Uh, do uh, she keeps referring, Kathleen Wynne keeps referring to the spring budget that that's when you'll see relief that, uh, you know, that then there'll uh, be some sort of policy rolled out and probably not necessarily a whole system change as we're speaking of. But how can you run this system the way she's got it without changing everything and still give away all these bonds? Because that will just make this really expensive energy system even more inefficient, won't it, as opposed to changing
2: it? Um, yeah. Like, won't that
0: make the problem worse, I guess, is what I'm saying, Ross? The
2: the big cost drivers are um, that they've contracted with electricity generators for guaranteed prices way above the market price. And every month they have a huge bill to pay to make good on these contracts. And that drives the global adjustment, which is the surcharge that really makes your electricity bills go up. Um, we don't have a, a big problem of excessive electricity consumption in the province. In fact, our electricity consumption is quite low compared to our generating capacity. So we um, um, have surplus generating capacity. There there isn't a lot of revenue compared to what they thought they would be, just because electricity demand is low. If she gets more people off electricity onto natural gas, uh, that will um, just make this problem even worse for the generators of lack of customers and lack of demand. Um, So that part, it it might save money for the people sometime down the road, and it would be years down the road when they get a natural gas hookup, um, but it's not anything that's going to address the cost drivers in the current system, which is all related to these contracts for above market rates for select generators.
0: If the price of clean electricity wasn't this high, would they be even talking about gas expansion to these areas?
2: Um, Well, up till now, they weren't. I didn't even know it was uh, an issue. I mean, I know people would like natural gas. Um, I would assume, though, that the distribution companies had looked at it previously and decided it wasn't something that they could justify Economically, in the end, you really have to. Make so now, in the, the, the end, is, pay for the, the connection, and if it's too expensive, the customers aren't going to pay for it.
0: So in the end, can we see the Ontario government subsidizing natural gas to get it delivered to these homes?
2: If they're desperate enough to show the results, if they want the photo op of somebody completing the hookup and starting up their gas fireplace, then wow, they might load it onto taxpayers. Yeah,
0: I don't know. I don't know how that press conference would fly having Kathleen Wynne hooking someone up to natural gas after we've just spent, you know, billions <laughs> trying to get hooked up to clean uh, electricity. I'm not sure that's going to fly. Uh, Dr. Ross McKittrick's been with us, professor of economics, CBE fellow in Sustainable Commerce, Department of Economics and Finance with the University of Guelph. Ross, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
2: Okay, thanks, Scott. Have a good afternoon.
0: The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.